I love meeting new people and I love trying new things. And it's, it's hard to be afraid of things if you try them. It's Uncommon Good, the program where we talk with ordinary people doing uncommon good in service of our common humanity. I'm Pauly Reese, fam. My guest today, Ashley Castaldo. She is from Duluth, Minnesota. That's right, Minnesota. We're old college friends, but there in Duluth, she is a political and community organizer. Her two most recent work includes the racial bias audit for the city of Duluth, the actual city of Duluth. And she served as a messaging consultant for Undivided, which is a grassroots political organization focused on protecting democracy in the Northland. Important work in these days. We talked about an incredible, incredible slate of things, including how she found herself in college, the journey, what it's been like for her to get to community organizing and public service, how she's worked hard to cultivate empathy for others, and how she's been learning to thrive as a person with autism in a neurotypical world. I'm truly honored to have had this conversation with her. A quick content warning, potential trigger warning for you. We do talk a lot about mental health and trauma. Some of the, some of the things that she's witnessed are, are pretty rough, including abuse. Um, and we do talk a little bit about suicidal ideation. So if these things are not right for you to hear, feel free, switch off, and we'll see you in the next one. Please enjoy my conversation with Ashley. Is it starting to feel more like fall in Duluth? Yes. Like now people are actually having to like wear a little bit warmer clothing now. Yeah. And like I had a friend actually say like this is the first day that he's turned on the seat warmer in the car. And so now it feels like it's a, di- a different season. Like that's how he, he basically marks fall in, in Duluth is when he's turned it on. <laughs> <laughs> like if it's if it's cold enough for a Duluthian yeah that sounds like that sounds like a star trek alien race a diluthian a, a diluthian to turn on the seat warmer which sounds very star trek oh yeah <laughs> um yeah but i i imagine i still imagine that being cold enough for a diluthian to turn on the seat warmer is still colder than yeah, it's like, pretty cold yeah yeah okay so so you're in the like you're in the like are you are you at the like fifty to sixty range yet? We're at six. It says sixty one today for the high, um, but it's been within the fifties kind of this week. Um, yeah. Earlier this week though, it was beautiful. I, we actually went sailing, um, and Ooh. it was like perfect, like it, exactly the temperature you want. Still felt like summer. We don't really have the colors changing yet, but it's expected like this week or next is going to start really turning. So it feels like it's happening now. And your beach is reasonably close to Superior or Huron. Yep, we're like Superior. Like I live literally five minutes from Lake Superior, so it's right here. Okay, there's a level of jealousy that I'm feeling that feels like punishable at biblical like proportions. Yeah, if you look on my uh, Facebook, especially there's pictures of me on the sailing trip, so you can see like mm-hmm. the lake and stuff. It's it was pretty awesome. It was a good trip. Yeah. <laughs> I am. Oh yeah, I, I I'm not going to look because I'm going to become more <laughs> jealous. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but thank you thank you so much for being here i'm so uh, i'm so glad that that we get to um, reconnect in this particular way but also like to talk about like 
more more of your story. Thank you for for being here. No problem. Let me grab my phone here for you so it doesn't make a sound. <laughs> I should do the same. You would think like after having recorded twenty episodes, I would be a half decent podcaster. So I'm gonna do the same check. Of... Yeah. I love your long hair, by the way, Polly. Thank you. Um, it's a lot of combing. Number yep. one. Yep, I just uh, got done having long hair. It's excessive combing. Exactly. <laughs> it's lots of combing. Um, I have a like 0.00001% keratin um, conditioner that I always rinse with whenever it gets washed uh, yep. that I'm very grateful for. That is supremely helpful. And That's also... Helpful. Just good Asian genes. What can I say? Nice. I'm. I. I can only say that I. I've. I've sort of in the same vein pool because I have a really good European and uh, Hispanic genes, and so my <laughs> hair tends to have a, l- a luster to it. But yeah, I mean, if if it goes beyond a certain like lengthwise, then all of a sudden it gets super thick, and so it just depends on what it wants to do. <laughs> I don't think I knew that you had Hispanic heritage in your family. I found out recently, like. I don't know why no one told me this, but yeah, like I have um, part Spanish, Portuguese and Italian, which I just thought I would have gotten Italian just from being married to Chase. But like, apparently I actually legitimately have some Hispanic blood, which was the biggest family secret I've ever heard. (laughs) (laughs) Scandalous. Um, (laughs) Spanish and Portuguese. Wow. Okay. Um, That, uh, that. I would say, at least in my experience, if that is the height of like the family secrets, I think you're probably in good shape. At least from oh, yeah. from, from my side. yeah, no 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 children uh, unfounded <laughs> in the family tree yet. Whoops! <laughs> uh, someone someone coming after the Castaldo family fortune, like whatever bastard child of great aunt Irma and uncle. Skeeter. <laughs> That'd be hilarious. <laughs> and but when we say Uncle Skeeter, we specifically mean Skeeter the Muppet. Yep, exactly. <laughs> it's like half half felt and orange hair. <laughs> and then I yeah, no, I know I I'm so jealous on multiple counts, mostly because I just love the fall so much and a crisp oh. 60 degree day sounds the best. just like heaven compared to like the the still. Halfway through September, the Ides of September upon us, um, like 80 degrees in, in uh, Center City, Philadelphia today. I would still love that. Our summer was too short. I would trade with you if yeah. I could for a brief moment in time because I, I love the heat. Did um, did spring run too long or did fall come too quickly? Or both? Uh, fall came too quickly in a way. Um yeah. And we like Duluth is kind of weird, and like we don't really have spring. It's just like electric. It's like winter part two electric boogaloo. Like <laughs> there's no real like flowering on the trees really, except for like a day. So like it just felt like winter, winter, short summer, yeah. and then fall came really fast. When there's no, when there's no sort of like transitional period, and suddenly you go from like parka to shorts. Um, what sort of I, I imagine that must take some sort of like emotional like fortitude to make that switch quickly. 
I maybe I guess when you move here it probably does because but I've had days in Minnesota where it, it's literally it starts the day with a parka and snow and then by noon it's 80 degrees and people are like having to go drive back home basically or have like extra like clothing in their car to deal with the deep intense changes of temperature so if you live here long enough you eventually deal with it but yeah it's just it's frustrating sometimes you have your backup outfit like in the back of the car oh yeah that that sort of reminds me a little bit of like the the winters um in in greenville illinois where we met where we met in college that like some it was so fickle like it would be just like so cold like bone chilling deep freeze cold and then the next day it would be like 50 degrees yeah (laughs) tell me about like the journey uh to today i know i know a little bit about duluth from what we've chatted i know i know a bit more about greenville um but tell me the journey that brought you to like the person that ashley castaldo is today Sure. I'll try and uh, pare it down as much as I can to the basic points, but, um, Take your so, time. so I grew up in Duluth and, um, my family's pretty small, but, um, I actually grew up in a household where there was domestic abuse. Mm. So I grew up in a childhood where it was really common to see like yelling and screaming and hitting and just kind of having to deal with this one world and then pretend and go mm. to the world with a different face on it in a lot of ways. Um, and so at that age, you kind of learn to be protective and have coping mechanisms, self-protection instincts, like lessons that are definitely kids should not be dealing with at a young age. Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's probably the biggest thing that's made me who I am, um, just because of having to face that adversity and then having the moments where, like, one of the things is that when I was a kid, I tried to let people know what was happening and nobody did anything about it. Nobody listened. Um, yeah, or they said, we'll pray for you and hope it gets better. I talked to some people who are members of faith, and that's the, the response that you get. Um, and so when you see something like that, it makes you more focused on not letting other people go through the same. Um, if you have any sense of empathy, that's kind of what you take away from it. Um, and so I kind of, whether or not this is like some kind of complex, but I always view myself as being someone who needs to make something better or save mm-hmm. some person from something that might be affecting them. Um, and that's definitely a thing I've had to work on um, with counseling. And as I grow older, that I can't solve every problem, um, yeah. even if that's my natural inclination to do so, especially as a parent. Um, but as I got older, um, so I grew up in a Catholic household. And as I got older, evangelicals, um, evangelicism kind of creeped in um, culturally to me too, as well. Got into like Christian music, got into um doing a lot of uh, different like church-based things was really involved in youth group and that kind of stuff. I want to expand a little bit more right there. Uh, sure. Because I also grew up in the evangelical space. Um, did you, did you have a favorite Christian band at the time? That, that oh, 100%. Um, so I don't know if uh, you or uh, your listeners will know this band, but plus one, the Christian boy band. I remember plus one. Um <laughs> <laughs> listeners imagine sort of like all of the actually because they started before that like i think they started in like the late nine the late 80s so imagine like backstreet boys but they were always wearing like a suit jacket with like a dress shirt like a button-down dress shirt that was like buttoned just a little bit like one button higher than it what it should have been to show like sexy like like Sternbush hair, like shout out to that's, Tim. That's Olson. actually a different one. They were like uh, right at like in the early two thousands, um, 
and they ended up getting so big oh. with the last flight out um that was like in like 20 something countries they were even on like disney and stuff what? and like you could find them in like the teen magazines with the posters and stuff like oh, letting God. you know like nate loves you uh jason is into this that 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 like the, like the goal entire goal for that band was to like get girls like attracted to these men and then basically eventually join the church like you can have a really hot guy who loves god don't you want to do that like that was the whole entire marketing ploy and it was awful because like i came to evangelicism when i was like 14 or 15 like 13 14 15 years old so like this was like my sexual awakening at the time so you're mixing jesus with like exact moment that hormones set in it, it's, a, it's an absolute horrible way to begin your faith journey honestly <laughs> i know first and foremost i love that um the the one that i'm thinking of is for him it was like yes it was the, num- yep. it was the number four plus the him and yes this oh they were big meaning. too though that was like my mom was into that. Like when she yeah. started listening, she's like, I really like this group. They seem really talented for him. And she tried to drag me to it. But yeah. I was like, I was like, nope, I'm mom, I'm into the cool music now. I'm into the boy bands. I'm into this, uh, these Christian uh, girls who are talking about their period in every single article. I won't listen to that thing. Like, I mean, it was some deep delusions at that age group. I'm in the late nineties Christian music, mom. <laughs> Yeah, that was the uh, era when they started like introducing the Jesus is my boyfriend type oh, trope with evangelicalism. Um, and so like that was a big situation. That was a big proponent of that, like that idea that like Jesus is so great because he takes care of women. You know, he wants to help the lesser people. But what if we just made him more buff? Wouldn't that be really cool? Wouldn't you want someone like that? And I mean, it's- Freud would have a field day with it. The whole goal was to basically like fill some sort of need that teens clearly have at that age for some sort yes. of intimacy. And yeah. then you're making you're like, if we just focus on this, we can ignore the fact that, you know, you're finding excuses to like do any sort of sexual contact but the big penetrative one. And like you're cool. <laughs> like you're fine for for the for youth group as long as you stick with all those outside things and you and you pray to Jesus and he's your boyfriend at the end of the week. Like that was the entire summary the christian experience at that age yeah it's just a weird situation so what was like young adult like youth group life and i suppose you could probably say like um like undergraduate college too i mean because we both went to the same yeah. like, private christian liberal arts college so like it's essentially like grade 13 youth group or at least it was for me oh yeah I, totally um i know like for at least in our youth group uh like it was a weird situation where there was like a lot of bullying, especially in youth group. Like there's a very big pecking order with the girls, and like I loved youth group. Like I liked going out and doing the the events, and like when we switched past youth pastors, there was kind of a different yeah. dynamic that I appreciated. But there's a brief period of time where the understanding was that there was popular girls at youth group, and they got the guys. And so there's kind of like that social dance, like on top of it, where you're like being really holy to like impress teenagers, but you're supposed to also have fun and like get to know them and do like activity so there's like a it's it's a, a yeah. very weird like cutthroat kind of like lord of the fly situation with religion um yeah. when you go to youth group but um i still enjoyed it but this is also around a time when like i was having my first like mental health um yeah. episode and so when you have those hormones and those emotions it's just there's no good way to like make it out except to just make it out alive that's really the only thing you can do at that point yes you mean that it's it's you mean that teens dissociate in the middle of things because they don't understand their bodies or social dynamics? Get out of here. I know. 
and like just like the just the like lack of social approval like if you're getting rejected yeah. as a teen yeah. as a teenager you're like what does this mean about myself like you're telling yeah. me that god loves me but everyone in the room hates me so what does that even mean um and so there's like the whole dichotomy about who are you as a person not just teenager but like as a human being yeah and how do you view yourself within that what I think I hear is just just an earnest desire to like find your find your people to be a part of a community. Yeah, for sure. Um, and especially like during that time, like uh, I started having like where I was sleeping a lot, and I just thought that yeah. was being a teenager. Like, and I just thought that was like God's burden for me to carry is just to like yeah. feel awful. Um, <laughs> and so like going through that for high school was a really transition period. Um, and but like once I got to Greenville, when I I met you and you know we went to undergrad and stuff, um, yeah. like the first like I want to say year of Greenville was amazing. Like I can't express how great it was. Like um, imagine going from being in high school and feeling like the ugly duckling and feeling like nobody likes you, and then you're going and you get to be having like a whole new personality, whole new clean slate. Yeah. Um, so it was really great, and like I would define that period as like the sexual revolution for me. Like. Mm even if you're not supposed to say that or experience that you're still going to a, a college where there's a bunch of really attractive people your age yeah. and there's no real limitations unless you have some sort of education to back back you up and be like listen we're going to be doing this this this, and this are you okay with it it was like people just found excuses just to like have any physical contact at that point yes. um so that was just a really weird like addition to my identity is you're moving from like being this child to this teenager and now you have to be a woman and what does that include yeah. now for your future that would have been like 2005 oh yep. my god i feel so old I know. Uh, but like the early 2000s sense of style like where all of the male-bodied people were in that sort of like emo or hipster space which usually included two sizes two small jeans yes which is which just made the irony even more thick because like you're spending time where, where we have like women having like you know attire rules and like hey you know yeah. don't wear your skirt too high up and i'm like but this guy right next to me is worshiping jesus and like there's no illusion i mean yeah. what what are you asking yeah. like i always want to yell at people be like hey um you want it you're um dressed like that you sure do like i mean you almost want to have that like sort of like gender equality situation going on because yeah. it's just ridiculous and the other side of it, like, you had better wear a full shirt and not half one. And if we oh, see yeah. a belly button, like... Yeah, I remember there was, like, when we first started, there was, like, a cra a, a big, like, campus-wide, like, notice because they found, like, at a Halloween party or something, a bunch of women were wearing, like, scandalous costumes and stuff. And they were just, like, this is going to be, you know, like, orgies everywhere. If, if, if we have, like, one more woman just wear, like a sexy Minnie Mouse costume. It's going to be game over. Everyone's going to be destroyed. The rapture's happening. Like, I mean, if there was a hint of like any sort of expression, it had to be clamped down pretty quickly or taken off campus. Thinking more widely speaking about evangelicalism, why do you think every time that it's exposed to an experience of difference, that it seems that the only thing is to feel, for an evangelicalism to do, is to feel threatened? I can only think that evangelicalism has a preoccupation with like punishment. Mm. And so there's a deep desire. There's things that are supposed to be wrong or bad um, mm. because like, I feel, especially in the authority place, like there has to be control. And I almost assume like there's some sort of psycho dominant 
background, like you feel safe by having that control. Um, mm-hmm. And in turn, there's just like different psychosexual reactions to that because um, like, yeah. like when I went to Greenville, I had my first same sex experience there. Yeah. Like you would not think that eventual campus, but under like the surface, you have a lot of people who are just like, we don't like this authoritarianism. So what do you do in response to it? You have like this just, it's either all or nothing within the evangelical worldview. You're either yeah. absolutely terrible or something's absolutely, absolutely good. And then the only way to remedy that is with punishment. <laughs> or unearned, abusively excessive reward. Exactly. Do we still believe in evangelicalism as capable of social good? I mean, that's a really good question because I've really thought back on that, uh, 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 back and forth on that. Because like I know evangelicals who are great people. Yeah. And are doing great things within that capacity. But like when you ask me about like the system itself or evangelicalism as a movement, I don't think you can. Um, I just mm. don't know that there's like the f- philosophical framework to make it be beneficial long term. Yeah. Um, I think at a certain point, either the doubts bury you and you leave or you just have to like pick and choose to the point where it's not even evangelism to begin with. And you just leave the pieces and walk away also. So um, I, I mean, I think there's got to be better better philosophical or uh theological backgrounds for us to get to where we need to be in a better place in society than evangelism at this point is there anything you think that the broader world of christianity can learn from the implosion of evangelicalism i think so i think um one of the big things that we can learn from is to understand that at the beginnings of our church and the beginnings of our faith were not like perfect to begin with mm-hmm. um you're taking a group of uh, of of church beings who had incredibly messy backgrounds. Someone was a fisherman. Someone was a, a tax collector. Um, yeah. Someone even betrayed the, the savior yeah. and like committed suicide. So th- these are not people who are like hundred percent perfect individuals. And then you're taking mm. those stories and those people um, who create the largest religious social movement that's ever happened in history. You're taking their works and you're bringing them to councils and they, groups of men arguing over what is valid and what's important and what means things. Mm. There's not having women, there's no minorities at the table, there's nothing there. So it's just, it's moving from one mess to the next. And you're taking all these narratives and all of these movements within the faith and you're expecting perfection and you're expecting it to be mm. the exact perfect thing that needs to be. Um, and I think a lot of us will have to be like a reckoning with how we deal with linguistics, honestly. You know, what does the word inspired mean? What does it mean to say like something's created from or born from? Um, from God, like, how do we, how we view that word and what that means and pertain to our life and whether something has validity to change ourselves. Hmm. I want to pivot a little bit to an outsider. Duluth is an unexpectedly progressive place. Please tell me a little bit more. Help me understand. Yeah. Especially within like having like a rearview perspective, like growing up, I just assumed that that's what life was like, that people recycled, people Mm. went to the lake, um, you know, people hiked all the time. I just assumed that that was what the rest of the world was like. Um, Mm. That was not the case that I learned when I went to eventually to Illinois. Um, So like we have like a very, I would say Scandinavian way approaching life. You know, people like stick to themselves. People are very helpful if you, if you ask, ask for it. Um, but like, we don't like our things messed with. So you won't see people like polluting. Um, everyone picks up the trash. It's, I mean, I mean, everyone wants to do what they can to make it so it looks comfortable and green is really the idea. Um, and 
as far as social issues goes, we have like a lot of progressive um, background and passed a lot of progressive things, which is really, I think it'd be shocking that someone would think of within a Midwestern area. The notes that I have from our previous chats is that Duluth has a borderline religious, like bordering on the religious level of respect for nature. Oh, yeah. Where does that come from? Yeah, I think it comes from a marriage between two separate cultures, the indigenous indigenous culture, because they view a lot of, especially with indigenous backgrounds, view nature as its own entity and its own personhood. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you're talking about like the Scandinavians and they have like Lutheranism, uh, Methodism, like the whole gamut of like high church Mm -hmm. learning. Um, And there's a big understanding of like God being the creator. And so hard work, you know, farming, like you take care of the earth um, because the earth benefits you, it feeds your family. Um, and so when you kind of have that intersection where both communities kind of can agree on something, it's kind of like the baseboard or the foundation for like the whole rest of the community, how they view, th- view nature as a whole. So it's a big thing for us. A lot of Minnesota, Duluth in particular, sits on reasonably like valuable potential parcels of um, natural resources. But yeah. you, the community like actively protested the mining and like won. Yeah, like... Uh, if there's anything where it's like there's people thinking that they're, they're going to ha- be doing a, a tremendous amounts of like moving uh, particles or uh, risking any harming to this Lake Superior. Um, I mean, we've had individuals protest as far, far up as Northern Minnesota because of it. Um, that's what line yeah. three was about, um, about, you know, the potential for risk to our environment. And mm-hmm. if, if, if there's even a whiff of someone doing something untoward or not being researched or not having the size to back it up, we don't, we don't tolerate that kind of thing. There's this part of this town that is in everyone that almost feels like it transcends political affiliation. Yeah, I think we've definitely noticed like there's more um, issues politically um, between parties within recent years in the past administration. Um, but there seems to be things that affect the core identity Duluth, and we just don't have dis- disagreements on that, like what it means to be Duluthian. Um, and so that's the kind of unifying message that I think we all have with each other. So, 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 give me the rundown. Um, what does it mean to be Duluthian? Um, I would say to be Duluthian uh, means uh, that you care about your neighbors and you care about what's helping, what's affecting them, um, mm-hmm. but you give them the love and the freedom to do what they need to do to be the best that they can be, even if that's mm-hmm. alone in their own, own personhood, um, and just being a good steward um, to the community as a whole. I think that's a very Duluthian value. You and I, we came to college like when when MySpace was out. Yeah. And so when you see from MySpace to Facebook and then the transition all through those media, it's yeah. the world gets smaller and smaller and smaller the more connections that we have to spread, not just like memories, but just also falsehoods too. Um, and that really, I think that's going to change exactly how we view the political landscape and social landscape, I think, for years to come. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, hell, just, just this, you're sitting at home in Duluth. I'm sitting in a conference room in Philly. (laughs) Let's talk more about that. Let's talk more about, about the, the question of, of, of media and politicking, because this is your work. This is what you do. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of a weird journey um, to make that transition. Um, Like, within the time of my merge and, and end of Greenville, um, yeah. I had a, like, a really deep, dark period um, back to back where um, even at Greenville, I remember um, being in Seattle on a Seattle trip. And there was mm-hmm. a point where I was with a group and I was looking over the bridge and I was thinking of jumping over um, just because I, I mean, I was still in the circle where you, where you believe that if you're having 
depression or sadness, it must be because you're not having a faith or it's mm. some sort of lesson that's God giving you. Um, and so having that, um, and then back to back with another episode, um, I eventually found myself within Springfield realizing like enough is enough. I got to get better. Um, yeah. and luckily, thank goodness, I haven't had any issues that were severe, like that I'm, I'm pretty on top of my health, but, um, having that experience, um, additional diversity kind of changed. Like, I, I wouldn't say that was like the first step to like getting into politics because I was mm. able to see like the lack of proper mental health resources we had, not just in our, in Illinois, but I could see the difference in other states from what people were talking about who were dealing with the same issue. Um, and I want to know why that was and why does one group have something and another group doesn't have that. Um, Before you move on, I want sure. to say, um, Thank you for not jumping. Um, I, I uh, among many others, I, among so many other voices that have that I'm sure are, are much closer, am just grateful that you're here. Um, well, thank and, you, Mike. No, it's just it's just one of those things. Like I think, like like in in my own spaces where I've been, like where my mental health has been much more raw and much less regulated. Um, like in, in all of like my own experiences of like depression and trauma and like neuro neurodivergence. Um, yeah. Like th there's sometimes, sometimes the, the, the work of survival of getting to bed at the end of the night, like is in itself the act of resistance and the act exactly. that's needed just to, to keep going. And that's like, sometimes that just needs to be enough. Yeah, and I think that's a really um, good point that you're making there, because um, uh, I've I think we we don't understand like the act of resistance is political nature itself, um, mm. and mm. has a lot of gospel undertones too, especially when you think of the character of Jesus. Um, like the idea of fighting is just naturally like an, an act of revolution, um, no matter how small we view it. Um, and so for myself, like that was like the I think the big first step to kind of um, being on a path of empowerment and saying you know what does that mean why do I want to be empowered um and then kind of within that time frame I was discovering that like hey I might be autistic um and so you begin that diagnosis and I kind of had to like rebuild my identity back up um because I I really I honestly at the point believed like wow I must be a really stupid individual I don't know if I have this what is else is wrong with me and so you mm -hmm. kind of break yourself open and putting yourself back together to figure out who you are um, can seem like the weakest, but it can be the strongest point too. Because at that point, you could you could literally be anything you want to be, um, mm -hmm. realistic at the end of the day. And so that was the first step for me. Um, and then, of course, I you know, Trump coming into office definitely changed exactly how I how I thought what we need to do. Like there was obviously a panic. Like there's an immediate like we have to do something. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do something. Yeah. Um, and then I, I want to say like the final big event for me for my adulthood that really kind of got me to where I'm at and changed things for me um, was when my student died. Um, you know, teaching a seven month old and having a child be abused and then getting worried that the child died because of that abuse. Um, and there's nothing you can do about it. Really, it, it makes you lose faith in the system. Um, yeah. You, you start to wonder why things aren't working and you have these questions about good good versus evil, you know, where are the people who are supposed to help us? They weren't there. Why aren't they doing it? Um, and this is, I feel like for me, like 
a lot of what I do is I'm, I'm helping live for someone else who can't be there. There's a life that was seven months old in that tri- a yeah. short, tiny frame. You know, what are the things that she's missing out on? What can I yeah. do to compensate for her? Um, and then in turn, you know, being a mother, you always want your kid to have the best world. Um, so just that kind of constant desire to fill some sort of a hunger, I guess, for doing something better or making it better than it was before is, I think, the no. driving factor for me. The that I, I'm reminded that you live in Minnesota, <laughs> and like you have, like the 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 horrifying deaths of Philando Castile and like George Floyd are in your backyard yeah i actually um i i worked tangentially with philando castile um during the time i was a teacher during then and i was actually training um at the sites and uh so for when it happened it was jarring i can't i'm i mean i can't speak on it personally because it's not my family it's not my story and my history um but it does shape where you're from and then george floyd is a whole other you know social political uh cultural movement in itself um And so when you're dealing with back-to-back reckonings in, in a way, um, yeah. it really does shape how you, how you trust authority and, and what you feel it needs to get done in order to create reconciliation for people. When is there time when there is all of this hurt and pain and profound, horrifying violence be- against Black bodies? When is there time to come up for air you know i don't i don't know because my experience is shaped in such different ways than even the black bodies themselves um that i don't know what you do to take and accept to listen um all i can do as my in my personal capacity is that if if someone needs help i want them to take me in and help me do the hard work you know or let me do the hard work for them um and there are days, you know, when my life is tough, but there are days when I'm, I'm absolutely grateful for the privilege that I have mm. um, because I can just step in spaces that other people can't reach and people do listen to me. Um, and if I can be sort of a mouthpiece for that and helping to alleviate pain and suffering for other people, that's what I'm going to do. As hard as it is, that's what my my job and my hope is. Um, and I think so much of it is otherization and we don't spend time in communities with each other. Um, we don't go out of our way to be in different um, cultural backgrounds or religious backgrounds. Yeah. Um, it's hard to hate the face that you love is, yes. you know, really what it comes yeah. down to. From your space, working in local city government in a role that feels like the Duluth version of like scandal, like Olivia Pope from the way that you've described <laughs> That's it. That's perfect. It made, yeah. Made me think of what are the little things that can help people know each other? One of the things at least I've tried to do to help people know each other or make people aware of things is um, I've made it a a real intentional choice to embrace empathy as a strength Mm. um, and listen to as many people as possible. I don't turn away people when they talk to me. Mm. Um, I have a pretty open door policy when it comes to it comes to messaging me. People can send emails, they can call, um, they can do whatever they need to do to let me know um, the the issue that they have. Mm. Um, I might not be on city council, but I know that I can give space and time to people so they at least feel heard. Yeah. Um, and if I can, within my capacity, give it off to people who, who can answer those questions. Um, but I think the biggest thing is we have to stop pretending like being a strong man or being um, this big, you know, public figure is 
the way to gain trust. I think empathy is really um, powerful. Um, and I think doing what you can to make it clear that you're going to be an active listener, a good listener, I think are the, are, I think that's, if you want to be successful in local government, that's an uh, unconventional, um, but very strategic way of going about it. So where does the capacity for empathy come from? You have this capacity to talk to anyone. Where does that come from? Um, I think it's, I think there's two like strengths that wherever it comes from one is I just don't really deny myself experiences. Mm. Um, I love being new people and I love trying new things and it's, it's hard to be afraid of things if you try them. Yeah. Um, and that create, and the more thing, more experience that you build up, the more connections you can create and more conversational pieces for people. Mm. Um, so that's really helpful. Um, but this is kind of one of the, the benefits of having autism. Um, there's a real lack of, fear of like social repercussion in some ways um i don't have the same like low threshold of social rejection that most people do mm. um and even with like you know trying to get better at you know social cues and stuff like there are just social signs that i don't read properly yeah. um or read facial expressions and so because i don't have that barrier um i kind of just go ahead the way i want to and if i want a piece of information i just keep going forward and asking it and yeah. um i don't really exist in the world of small talk um, people find out that if they get to know me, I get pretty deep pretty quickly. Um, and it's kind of jarring. So I kind of know my real relationships with an authentic, you know, request pretty early on a conversation mm. because people will be into that or they won't. There's no, it, there's no real being iffy on that. Um, mm. And so I think that that kind of helps cultivate a really empathetic worldview. Since you, um, since you raised it, let's lean in a little bit more. We increasingly have public media capital to be able to talk about mental illness in a real way, neurodivergence in a real way. How close are we to being able to talk about autism in a way that is actually productive and generative, like in the public? Or, or are we just like, like years down the road? I think... I think it feels far away on um, yeah. on, on some respects on paper um, because there isn't really like a lot of like like autism legislation even with disability law we're still kind of behind. Mm. Um, even when I talk to people about like what basic accommodations are, there's still a huge misunderstanding of what is an actual need and what's a handicap, mm. vice versa. Um, so I think that there is some traditionalism on there, um, but I do think that we're going to start seeing a real big um, awakening kind of of um, autistic individuals making progress and and making you know noise um elon musk you know being like the mo most prominent known person um it's hard for him not to take up media space um and draw attention to, mm -hmm. to that um as much as you disagree with him i mean when you have like the most richest person on the planet with a, a neurodivergent uh diagnosis it's really hard not for that to be yeah be a focal point i think um yeah. and and i'm really fortunate um because you know, if I do get on city council, I'll be, I think, the first openly autistic individual in a local office outside. Of, like, I have a friend who is autistic and she's on a school board, but as far as like actual, um, uh, like legislative body, yeah. I think I would be the first one, um, to my knowledge. Um, and I've been hearing that there's a lot more autistic individuals who are running for office. Mm. And so eventually those mm. spaces are going to get filled up. Um, I think for the big discussion points too, I think we're going to see is, uh, you know sexual um issues regarding disabilities especially in the autistic community um there's still in movies there's this big idea that autistic individuals are like asexual um or sexist individuals who don't communicate on that level yeah um 
And I think we're going to start seeing, it's my hope, honestly, that we see more people who are like proud of their bodies mm. um, and proud of intimacy. Um, and they view autism as, a, as you know, a, a intimate strength and not something that's, you know, a taboo. I, I'm, I'm hoping that we can see more of that idea that, you know, autism is sexy. Um, because I, as stupid as it sounds, it really is kind of like a great equalizer. Yeah. Once you, once you, once you're able to give people dignity that they can be sexual beings and that they're worthy of being attracted or validated, then that there, it, there's more equity down the line. I think for all of us, I think people want to love and be loved, and anything that we can do in the disability moment to get people to feel that way is the best thing we can do. I um, there is such power and capacity to know someone when you find the way to acknowledge and to amplify human dignity. So thank you. Yeah, no problem. Uh, I mean, I, especially in society, you know, we, we use phrases like um, to make someone feel like a man or, um, you know, even men will compare themselves by how they can please a woman or please yeah. their partner. Yeah. Um, and if we don't afford that ability to other people, there's like a whole other realm of competency that we're denying people. Um, you know, and I don't think we understand like in our day to life, you know, it's it's funny, it's yeah. a joke. It's like, ooh, that's a seedy taboo, but we don't like think in our day life, like that is really something that people take into the outside world. You know, am I competent in my own home and behind closed doors? Um, mm. That, you know, that drastically affects how, how you view our own abilities outside in the workplace mm. and in um, social circles. Um, and I think that's going to be an important point for social discussion, I think, in the future. For people who may be a little bit less familiar, can you give us the dime tour of autism? Help us understand a little bit about what it is. Sure. So depending on who you ask, it's viewed as a developmental disorder. Um, other people just kind of view it as like a cluster of social impairments or learning disorders. Mm. Um, at least in my own experience, I, I've, I've worked really hard to have like really strong verbal skills. Um, yeah. And I'm pretty good socially overall there's just you know there's there's quirks is what i would say um but it, it can also be defined by you know spatial um spatial issues or uh executive functioning um dysregulation there's different things mm -hmm. that can be involved with it um sensory overload too like there's times where i can't be in large crowds or if i'm shopping it becomes overwhelming and I'll do what is called stimming, like engaging in like repetitive behaviors to calm myself down. Um, mm -hmm. And that's been a huge part of my journey is being okay with that. Um, because growing up, like I would even have, I don't know how I didn't, how I went this long without being diagnosed because mm -hmm. like I did stimming behaviors as a young kid. I remember there's a, peri a period where I was constantly closing my eyes mm -hmm. um, and people would tell me, stop, what are you doing? And I didn't realize at the time that that was, oh, that's like a sensory thing. Yeah. Um, and so I've had to like learn how to accept myself and be okay with it. Um, I still don't do it out in public, but like I, I know I'm at the place where I'm okay in my home. And if things get overwhelming, like I have to go in and release it essentially. Um, but so that's autism in a nutshell is kind of like, you see like the wheel of different symptoms um, and you can have be on one and in one area and one on, on the other, as far as where you're at with abilities. It's just like a kaleidoscope of, of different uh, uh, different behaviors that we view as being s awkward or dysfunctional um, in comparison to um, neuronormative um, society. Thank you. It's very gracious to be able to make that connection. I suppose to a certain extent that kind of follows your commitment to be present and to to 
to to hear and to to offer a good story to offer human dignity to someone else thank you yeah there has to be openness you know yeah there has to be yeah you told me like there are a couple misconceptions that i wanted to highlight and one of them is that autism is by far not a one-size-fits-all thing not even close um and part of the, the misconception is um because for so long they've only diagnosed boys with it um it was viewed as a boys disorder um girls could have uh um add but autism was pretty much exclusively reserved for boys Mm. um and so you kind of get this perception that um autistic individuals are just you know screaming uh asexual or borderline sociopathic characters if you want if you're watching you know television yeah um but that's not the case at all um you know we come in as many shades and hues as little as literally any other demographic that exists out there. You told me also that the prevailing concept of savantism is just not based in any sense of reality. No, I mean, I think, I think it, savantism is one of those things. Um, one, they're very rare in society. Mm. I mean, we can all think of like all the savants we've seen because they make movies about them. Yeah. Um, you know, this isn't like a big culture community of savantism. Um, but it's really indicative of autism in general, where you have like these really high, like capacities for certain things and knowledge in certain areas and Mm. then low in other areas and that discrepancy. So it's like a really great catch all for explaining that. Is spectrum a fair language to use? Is that okay? Or should I not? I think that that, I think at least when the most top groups of people I talk to, they prefer spectrum or like, you know, a, a gradient. You can okay. use either either term for that. So, so someone, someone who's here in in like the someone who's somewhere along the gradient, um, uh, so, someone who's certainly not like your your strengths might be here, your liabilities might be here. And so, I'm what I'm imagining is like the further along you might be in that gradient, the wider the chasm between these sets of things would exactly potentially manifest okay i got it that's exactly how it how it how it looks yep the last piece that you mentioned is that there are multiple creative ways to overcoming the challenges to to forming emotional connection yeah definitely um i i've known like there's a lot of um I don't know if you saw this one YouTube video that was making the rounds a couple of years ago, um, but there was actually an autistic individual who would show up at Star Trek cons, um, conventions, mm. and he actually talked to Whoopi Goldberg and said, like, he watched wow. Star Trek, and he, she was her favorite character, um, and, like, he would watch Star Trek to learn social cues and how to adapt to different people, mm. um, and then he would, it would make him prepare for, to go to conventions, mm. and he was finally able to have like actual real relationships for his time by going to these conventions and talking with people. Mm. And he like, um, Oh, it's, it's hard to talk about, but like, um, he actually went and he found a girlfriend and for the first time he felt like a normal person and he thanked her because that's what Star Trek gave him. Um, and you know, we don't look at things in real life as being successful coping strategies or creative ones. Mm. Um, but that's just like, that's, that's one such really important thing. Like I, in part of my process, I watched a lot of House MD with mm. you, Lori. Um, like, like I watched it, like, I want to say, like, four seasons, like, four times in a row, all eight seasons. Yeah. Um, and even at my lowest moment, like, I would watch it, and I would watch him, and I'd be like, you know what? Even if I'm alone in this world, there's this one other person who understands me. 
and that should have been my biggest indicator that there was like a diagnosis that was coming up uh coming up on my journey because yeah. um like we don't think of it but that like even if it's a fake sense of connection it feels real mm. and when you have that kind of like life raft in the sea of adversity when you're having you know like losing friends because you can't connect with someone yeah. or you're having like an inability to hold a job because you have poor executive function these things yeah. um like they at least make you feel like you're making progress in the midst of of having to like learn to move past adversity yeah do you have a favorite storyline or, or or episode that you remember um well the, the one story one one of the ones is uh when he actually meets the autistic patient and they yeah. have to connect over the video game yeah. that obviously was a big thing mm. um but for myself just i want to say dr 13's uh descent into losing her health yeah um and then the episode with the uh, amber and house having to re reconstruct the the train ex uh the, the train accident i want to say like those were the top three moments for me within the within the show there was in, in spite of like all the the fine, fantastic performances, there like to your point, there is just such incredible writing on that one too. Oh, I mean, absolutely nailed it. There's very few mm. shows I think that were amazing, like all seasons. The Wire is another one, <laughs> um, but House is like, I mean, that's within within the purview. I would say like incredible storytelling. We keep coming back to this piece of story, so I want to ask you for another one. What was it? What, what was parenting during the pandemic like? Oh, I mean, that's. It's a strengthening exercise, but I wouldn't wish it on someone, is what I would say. Because, uh, I mean, you know, I love my son. He's a great kid. I'm, do I'm doing the best I can to raise him, and he has a great father and a great extended family helping. Yeah. Um, but there's nothing beneficial and healthy to a kid being only with their parents 24-7. There's no, there's no way you can help your kid not be stunned in that situation. Um, kids need to be with other kids and they need to have me at school and um you know i think the problem is that when you have your kids with you it starts to really um fray that relationship between parent and kid into being like this person is your only source of of, of connection mm. and i think that can complicate the family dynamic in some ways that i don't think we're even like dealing with after covid yet um yeah. But I mean, I'm, I was really fortunate and blessed. Like I have strong family support system. Um, I have a really good spouse, so we can we can work well with each other. Um, but yeah, I don't think for I don't I certainly as a parent wouldn't be signing up for another round of that. <laughs> it's hard for me to think of anyone who would. Yeah, um, I mean, there's some people who said that they loved loved life then, and I just. I, I, I didn't gain anything beneficial. I just ended up engaging in really poor coping mechanisms, like drinking too much because I had nothing to do that day yeah. and nowhere to go. And I couldn't go anywhere. Yeah. Um, and so you make these really, even if you're supposed to be quote unquote safe, you're not mentally safe and you're making poor decisions. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and I mean, thank goodness, like for a huge portion of it, there was the outside and I could go out and do walks and stuff, but you're in a place where you don't know and anxiety is high. Um, and so I'm just glad that we're kind of adjusting back to a model where people are kind of, you know, taking a breather and like, okay, we're going to, we're going to not be as reactive as we were the first time around is what I'm, I'm thankful for. Even in Minnesota, um, we're, you know, everyone's like was big on being, uh, getting vaccinated and, and people are, you know, openly embracing getting uh, boosted. Um, I just think people have such fatigue about the social 
dynamics that even if it's bad, I don't know if people will even let it phase them. I think we reached a point where it's just too much uh, at one time and people are just going to exist and try and survive the best they can. Is there anything that like local policy can do to like to look out for like, looming like mental health crisis? Yeah. Um, I think one of the main things is um, especially a, a reframing of, of messaging and marketing um, for mm. one is I think going to be the best way of doing it. I think we didn't handle that correctly the first go around. And I sure. had, I made publicly my complaints about that beforehand. Um, like in our, um, our prior discussions, you know, I mentioned um, for how, however, the level of things that can get bad, there's an apt, absolute opposite reaction. And that means that's exactly how good things can get. Yes. Um, and I think if people are saying, you know, this is a bad situation, we take that time to rise to the occasion mm -hmm. and make it the exact opposite in, in as positive as soon as possible in how we handle the situations. Um, and so I think just a reframing of it, first of all, like, you know, we're doing our part, we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. um, uh, we're, we're, we want us all to be safe and healthy and have the best Christmas season possible. If you can like have those positive messages, um, I think we'll be in a lot better place this time around personally, mm -hmm. but that's, you know, whether people decide to have that enthusiasm or not, I guess is the, the real labor. So thinking more to the future, what's next for Ashley Castaldo? One of the things that you told me that I would love to hear in particular about is dreams for what you'll do when you become elected to city council. Um, my hope, um, right now, I mean, the short term and long term of it is, yeah. um, I'm hoping to be working on a couple more political campaigns for other candidates, um, mm. um, in some capacity. Like currently, right now, I'm working for a grassroots organization um, called Undivided, and that's helping Northland, um, Minnesota, um, that region, uh, kind of be willing to get rid of the whole bipartisanship issues that are um, bothering us and strengthening democracy and protecting it, um, and get people to vote to to protect the you know the federal the way of living that we we enjoy the 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 freedom and democracy all the things that make america great mm -hmm. um you know in spite of the political landscape that we have going on um so i'm currently finishing up the election cycle with that um and i'm hoping to get involved within the campaign uh for mayor and city council um for city duluth i'm helping with that um but i i've talked it out with people who who support me and with the people who i care about and i am absolutely going to be running for the city council next um the next spot that's open for it mm. um and i'm going to continue bringing that platform that i i had with my prior city council campaign um and bring that within city and helping um empower people you know um, so i want to increase economic development uh economic investment um increase housing rights uh protect the locals and make it clear that you know the locals are not going to be pushed out of their homes um yeah. and their communities um and make a really great place for people to raise their families that's so important to me is having strong family and communal relationships um and so just doing what i can to speak on that and the issues of the people who who spend their time um in the quiet to talk to me and make make them know that they're not need, need important that's my goal for future yeah so you've just got like small things yeah just just you know weekend things like just gigs you know <laughs> <laughs> you told me once you got a call that sounded like it came straight out of some sort of like political serial tv show where someone called you and said we like your work what would it take for you to come and work with us yeah so um this is this is how you can tell like politics is a game 
for some people it's yeah. like a giant chessboard yeah um and it's also kind of refreshing way because you can realize that both sides are not that different <laughs> um like like we have different names but realistically it doesn't matter who the person is as long as it's what matters is on this what side yeah. they're on in a lot of these yeah. discussions i don't you know orientate my political philosophy that way but it's definitely within the larger picture and i think people can see yeah. that yeah. um but i end up a rough, i want to say roughly six months ago i got called by the uh gop um and they asked me if i wanted to work on an exploratory campaign for some individuals who are thinking of being the the Republican presidential nominee, and with even with some of the um, lower level Republican offices, mm. um, and they included DeSantis. He was one of the names that was thrown up, uh, thrown up on there. And I had to talk to them, you know, and say, "Listen, like you know who I am, right? Like this isn't. I, it's not like I'm pretending. I'm very vocal about my values and where I stand, um, and the organizations I volunteer with. I'm on. I'm a board member on the DFL Environmental Caucus, yeah. uh, Outreach Inclusion Officer. There's, I mean." If you're talking about like hiding something, I'm not hiding anything by any means. Um, but they, but they were like, "Well, you seem competent." Like, <laughs> are you? Um, <laughs> and so it's like, "Well, thanks, I guess." Um, and I was like, "But," and they're, I was like, "But is that going to be a problem for you, my progressive values?" And like, "Well, like, what can you handle dealing with?" Like, they, they were actually like wanting to know what I could reasonably like be okay with promoting and sleep at night with so the thing that i take away from all of this is that all of this shit is 100 percent real i mean people think like house of cards and scandal is like pretend it kind of is but it's <laughs> it's more real than people think it is and parks and recreation is definitely like a documentary like in my oh. mark is a documentary i i, I well yes <laughs> <laughs> so, the, the the thing that I just find so fascinating about about this sense of impact that you have is that everyone is welcome. Like you took that phone call. You didn't just sort of. You didn't just just go hello like RNC click. Yeah, because um, you know one of the things I have and why I'm thankful for experience I have is most of my family is GOP. Sure. They're most yeah. most of my family is Republican. Um. And again, like I bring it back, it's really hard to hate the people you love. Yeah. Um, I see, I see Republicanism and Trumpism as a very broken ideology, and I have huge, huge feelings of anger towards Trumpism in general. But it's hard for me to have the capacity inside to cut myself off from people unless yes. there's something obscenely egregious. Um, and I don't blame the woman on the end who's working in the HR and trying to fill this position. She yeah. has a job. She's a family. She's taken care of. Um, I don't consider her the architect of the movement by any means. Um, so I'll give someone time if they're offering offering it to me, and hopefully we have some sort of middle ground. And I felt really positive about the conversation because she even agreed with me on certain things and said, you know, that's a really great way of, of viewing stuff. Um, but people don't change and movements don't change unless you give space to listening and to have real dialogue. Um, and it's a tough thing to practice, but it has to be done consistently or we're never going to make any, any headway in the future. There's usually one question that I ask people um, as the, the last point of conversation, um, and here it is. Um, what do you want the world to look like when you're done with it? I hope that when I leave far sometime in the future, yeah. um, I hope we can get a little closer to like the actual 
um, like core reading of Martin Luther King where, where you know we state like um, we don't see them for the color of their skin but for the content of their actions mm. um, and I'd like to view to be in a world where we don't view differences as things that are being to be afraid of or to box people in I want to have people engaging in identity politics at that point mm. um, I want to be a thing where we're really um, we're viewing people on what they've done and what they brought to the table yeah. and the actions that they've created um, and I think the best we can do to make the world a better place where people feel open, accepted, and heard, and important, and that people have some sort of value and dignity. That's what I want. I would, I would like to see a way we can at least measurably define and have as much quality of life for people as possible. So leave it in a way where people have better schools, um, better homes, better health. Um, I don't know necessarily like in specifics what that would look like, but that's the general feeling and sense that I hope that I can leave, that people can smile and say, today was a good day. Mm. What do you think is one thing that we can be doing to move towards those ends? What's one thing we could do today? One, um, so I think the biggest thing you can do is kind of a half and half, like a asterisk attached to it is one, read. Um, mm. Read as much as you can get your hands on. Um, you gotta get as much information um, data come to the table as prepared as you can. The best prepared people are the ones who are the most um, easily who can be put into action. Um, and so reading, I mean, it just, it, it changes how you view the world and how you view people. Um, and, you know, this life is short. Don't deny yourself experiences um, if they come your way. Um, the more things we can do to create a better narrative for ourselves and that we can share with others is, I think, it seems small and powerless, but I think it's the best way we can we can act without having, you know, the power privilege on our side. My thanks to my guest, Ashley Castaldo. You can follow her on Facebook at Ashley Marie Castaldo and Twitter at Ashley City. Thank you for tuning in to Uncommon Good with Polly Reese. This program is produced in southwest Philadelphia on the unceded land of the Lenny Lenape tribe and the Black Bottom community. If you enjoyed listening to the show, please support us by leaving us a five-star review and subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. It really does help people find us. Uncommon Good is also available on YouTube and Instagram. Follow us there for accessible video content and more goodies. We love questions and feedback. You can send us a DM on Instagram or an email at uncommongoodpod at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Until next time, wishing you every uncommon good to do your uncommon good, to be the uncommon good.